0: Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House, who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And we are joined today by Brittany Barnett, an award-winning attorney and author focused on criminal justice reform. Before she joins us, we wanted to talk a bit about the results of the impeachment trial because there's a lot of long-term implications to Trump's acquittal. Ladies, how are we feeling a week later?
1: Every time you have something like this, this major come before Congress, it has momentary implications, but then it actually sets precedent, right? And we have a president who just got away with rhetoric that drove his followers to the Capitol and incited violence. And you know, there were seven Republicans in the Senate, who did side with the Democrats to vote for impeachment. And already we're seeing so many of them receive backlash from the Republican Party.
2: You have to wonder where this leaves the Republican Party. Are they a party of conscience and values? And do they continue to be led by one singular figure who has had so much power over the party for so long and To their own detriment, I mean, they lost the House, they lost the Senate, they lost the presidency. So what does that mean for this next couple of election cycles? And you see the majority of the senators that voted to impeach him are not running for re-election. They know the cost. They voted their conscience and they know what this is going to mean for any potential for re-election. But it's just it's really kind of tragic that this is where they stand because it's not the Republican Party that I know.
0: And it's interesting, the topic of conscience, if we can talk about that for a second, because I remember when I ran for office, one of the things you think about a lot is that you don't know what the issues are that are going to come up over the next four years. You don't know what's going to happen with the country. I mean, look at what happened with COVID. It was just, you know, something that completely was sprung on all of us. But that's why you are electing people where you believe that their integrity and their conscience will be as such that whatever comes up, that you have that trust in how they're going to vote. Right. And and it's interesting because you're seeing all these folks say, well, you know, I, I voting based on what people in my district want me to do. And they're kind of kind of shaking off the responsibility of, well, what do you think is right? Mm -hmm. And people aren't stepping up and they aren't voting with their conscience. They're voting for a lot of reasons. A lot of them, they feel very self-serving. But that's at the backbone of what we expect from public servants.
1: You know, it's really about the power of personality, though, because I remember when Donald Trump was elected, of course, you know, having a family where a lot of my family is Republicans, this was super divisive. Right. And people there were divorces over a president, which I always was like, really, a president is going to come between you and your spouse. And we're seeing right now actually a backlash of those who did stand up for their morals, right? To your point, Alejandra, we're seeing, you know, I saw this morning Adam Kinzinger, who's a congressional representative who voted for impeachment in the House from Illinois. His family came out to say awful things about him in a letter, like saying he should have sided with Trump. And it's, I don't think history will reflect well on that flip and the following of a personality in politics, because to me, politics should be about policy and not personality.
2: And it should be about principle as well. And you see that over the weekend, um, Senator Burr was censured by the North Carolina GOP for his vote. And it's so sad that He can't even vote his conscience. And what they said, you know, is they didn't send him to Washington to do that. And I'm thinking, what did you send him to do then? What did you send him to do if not to uphold the Republican Party's core principles? And this goes against everything that they stand for.
0: Well, and Johanna, to your point about the reelection piece of it, you know, this is something that Nancy Pelosi, right after the vote to acquit, kind of stormed a press conference she wasn't supposed to be a part of because she was so incensed, she felt like she had to say something. And one of the things she said is, you know, when we recruit candidates to run for office or when we you know talk to candidates that want to run they always say well you i don't know i have other options other things i could be doing i'm not sure if i want to do this and she said we want people who have other options we don't want people that have no other way to have a job we want people that it's hard for them to decide because there's so many different things they can do with their talent but they choose to be public servants right now, when you see people voting as if I can't lose this job, it's it's I can't not be reelected, you know, and, and the focus is so much on, you know, she said, like, what, you guys can't get another job? Like you, you can't make a stand because you're that afraid they're going to lose this job because that's the only thing you have going for you. You know, it's the self-servingness of only thinking about your reelection chances versus our democracy, our constitution, mm-hmm. you know, that. That is the focus, and that's where the focus should be. I think self-serving
2: is the right term for that, and power-hungry. Because if you can't let go of the ego and the power that comes with a position, if that's where you get so sunk in that place that that's all you're thinking about is you, 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 then you're not actually serving the people that you went to Washington to speak for.
1: You're absolutely right, and I, I really had a gut punch in my belly when I read this letter to Adam Kinsinger because it was familiar. Like, when I became a Democrat, they're like, oh, my God, you know, you can't possibly be a Democrat. But long term, most of them have shared my values throughout. And they now are saying, you know, you were right. But in this letter, it said, oh, my, what a disappointment you are to us and to God. To God. And to God is the point where I'm going, I had a friend early on in the Trump era say be very worried when your country shields its racism and bigotry in the name of religion. And that's what I feel like we're seeing right now is that there are people who have these points of views that they are just nothing's going to change their mind. And so now they're going to they're going to vote for Trump offspring because I guess Laura Trump is going to run for that North Carolina seat. Did you guys see that?
2: Do you ever just think if I never saw another last name and the way that history repeats itself and the way that these election cycles repeat themselves and not for nothing, I love George Bush and I admire the entire Bush family, but if another Bush didn't run, that would be okay because two Bushes have served at the highest level of government. If another Clinton didn't run, That would be okay because there has been so much of the Clintons in politics. And if the Trumps never ran again, if they went silently, quietly into the night, that would be okay too, and probably better for this country. But unfortunately, again, it goes back to ego and being self-serving. That's all they care about right now. And I saw over the weekend there was this parade outside of Mar-a-Lago of Trump supporters waving their flags and wearing their hats. And I'm like, this is never
0: going away. To your point, Darian, you know, having untraditional nonlinear type candidates run for office that aren't kind of career politicians that haven't been plotting and planning for this for their entire lives is exactly what we need because those people won't feel so beholden. I remember I went to grad school at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And I had some classmates, you know, that were wanting to run for office. But I remember one person in particular who he hasn't run. But whenever we'd be at parties, he would never stand in the party with like a red solo cup because he was so worried about being photographed with that cup because he was going to run for office in like 20 years. And he was so paranoid about that. And those are not the type of people that we need to be representing us. The people that are so consumed with trying to attain power they can't even relax and like actually um, be authentic, right? Right, right. And, and so they can't live. Yeah, so I, I just, I think about like all the more reason, like I'm always banging the, the desk about like, run for office, run for office, but all the more reason people with, backgrounds that are relatable and that actually ties into our next guest because Brittany barnett is an award-winning attorney and author and and has done so much incredible work but her background is one that has a lot of empathy for the people that she defends and so let's let's get to that interview now Brittany barnett is an award-winning attorney author and the founder of the buried alive project and girls embracing mothers thank you for joining us Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, many of us are drawn to careers based on our own personal experiences and our families and communities. I know that's the case for me and several of us. Reading about your background, it seemed like that might be the case for you as well. So I guess I want to start off by asking you what inspired you to go into law?
3: You know, I honestly, as cliche as it may sound, always wanted to be a lawyer. I grew up in rural East Texas, and I wanted to be Claire Huxtable from the content <laughs> Show. And, you know, growing up and getting older, for some reason becoming a lawyer just started to seem as if it was out of my league, out of my reach. You know, I grew up in a small town in East Texas where unfortunately there were very few lawyers and there sure weren't any lawyers who looked like me. And so I lost sight of that dream for a little while, but it never quite disappeared. And so that's really where it stemmed from, was watching Claire Huxtable on The Cosby Show.
1: Well, uh, Brittany, I, I loved your book, A Knock at Midnight. And it starts with a searing story of a mother dropping her daughter at elementary school, having only tangentially been involved in a drug crime, feeling regret, and fearing for what's going to happen next as she's going back into the courtroom, um, having no idea that her sentence would put her in prison for the rest of her daughter's childhood. I got the impression that Sharonda Jones, who was that case, really inspired you to take on some of these injustices in our criminal justice system. Can you tell us more about that case and kind of what really drove you to the next level of pursuing reform?
3: Yes, absolutely. I ended up going to law school and knew that I was going to practice corporate law. I had degrees in accounting. I was a certified public accountant working at Coopers, and it was just a natural gravitation for me to practice corporate law. But I took a critical race theory course in law school that analyzes the intersection between race and the law. And in my paper, I was talking about this disparity in sentencing that occurs between powder cocaine and crack cocaine and the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act and how this law implemented not only mandatory minimums, but this 100 to one ratio and sentencing disparity which means that one of you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine. I could have only five grams of crack cocaine and we were gonna receive the same sentence in prison. And so it's not lost on anyone today, especially in the late eighties, early nineties that more affluent white people were using powder cocaine and crack cocaine was running rampant through communities of color in particular black communities. And so. I was just frustrated, intrigued, inspired by this law to drive change. But in my paper, something was missing, the heartbeats. I wanted to tell the stories of people who have been impacted by this law that was racially biased in the sense that nearly 70% of people in federal prison are black and brown, And I literally did a Google search one night as a law student in the law library and I Googled like woman federal prison life and the case of Sharonda Jones popped up. And it was a case that would change my life forever. Sharonda Jones is a black daughter of the rural South like me. I saw so much of myself in her. And at the time she was serving her 10th year of a life without parole sentence For a federal drug offense her first conviction (laughs) felony or otherwise Sharonda had never even received a traffic ticket before and it was so mind-blowing to me and it was just something about her case that tugged at my soul and so even knowing I was going to practice corporate law had a job already lined up I was determined to help Sharonda Jones get free and we went on A six year journey of highs and lows, of running into every roadblock possible, of realizing, wow, there is no avenue of relief for Sharonda through the court. The only way for her to be free was going to be clemency from the president of the United States of America.
1: It's just it's it's nonsensical in so many ways. And you write so much in the book is personal. You say, no one emerges from the indignity of incarceration unscathed. My mother was traumatized from her time in prison. You write about how you finally started talking about your mom also being behind bars. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I mean, there are so many painful moments of being a daughter having to deal with the broken wings of a parent.
3: Yes. And it was something very challenging for my sister and I to grow up with a mother who had a drug addiction. We had a happy life. You know, we didn't want for anything, or if we did, we didn't realize it. And we knew that we were loved and we knew that we were loved unconditionally, but there's something very traumatic in having your hero on ground zero. And when that's your mama. You know, and my mom's drug addiction ultimately led to her incarceration, which was my first foray into the criminal legal system, if you will, because my mama needed treatment, not punishment. And because of that experience of having an incarcerated mother, I was a young adult when my mom went to prison and I can't imagine being 10 or 11. And that experience really resonated with me and drew me even closer to Sharonda Jones's plight because she left behind an eight-year-old daughter who was 18 by the time that I took on Sharonda's case.
0: I want to stay on the, the part of being a daughter to an incarcerated parent, because this is something that you've actually really dug into in your work for nonprofits. Let's talk about Girls Embracing Mothers, why you founded that, the role these kinds of programs can play for youth, and even once they're incarcerated, you know what role these kinds of programs can have to support young people who are dealing with these issues.
3: Absolutely, Girls Embracing Mothers is a nonprofit that I founded about eight years ago in Texas. And we work to empower girls whose mothers are in prison to break the cycle of incarceration and lead successful lives with vision and purpose. We really work to amplify this issue of women and girls who are impacted by maternal incarceration. And even though I was a young adult when my mom went to prison, it was a devastating experience for my sister and I. There are millions of children in this country who have experienced the incarceration of a parent. Millions of people in this country who have experienced the incarceration of a loved one. And it's all heartbreaking. But it's something different when it's your mama. There's a primal wound there that just cannot be explained. And so the work that we do with Girls Embracing Mothers is really empowering, you know, to bring women and girls together with this shared unique experience so that we can heal together in a safe space.
2: Wow. And as you talk about breaking the cycle that resonates with me a lot, I live in Chicago and lately we've seen both locally and nationally a rise in carjackings and crimes being committed by kids who were generally being put up to it by gang members and they're being preyed upon during this pandemic and it's disproportionately happening in communities of color. And I think back to your book and how you spoke about Professor Lacey's class and that that was the first time that it really registered to you that race shapes all of our lives, brown, white, or black, in both visible and invisible ways and that our legal systems were inseparable from our sordid racial past. And from that lens, and as you talk about breaking the cycle, how do we interrupt that pattern of offense that starts so young?
3: You know, that is a great question. It's a very important question. And I think part of the way that we we do that is to really ensure that any social programs that we have in place in our communities, that they all include this element of healing from trauma. Yeah. And I think that that is a space and a unique opportunity in communities across the country, in particular communities of color, where there's this huge gap in resources as it relates to mental health.
2: I think that's right.
1: Well, and in reading your book, it was so personal because I've had family members struggle with drug abuse, some of it prescription and some of it illegal substances. So it's really, we're seeing this happen to so many people, but People are locked up for life without getting the help they need. And you're right, it has an effect on their children and cyclical issues, not least of which is that we're incarcerating so much of our human talent. But people who are against prison reform use the argument that reform is going to increase crime. Can you share the real facts on prison reform or criminal justice reform?
3: Yes, I wholeheartedly disagree that criminal justice reform will increase crime. I think this country has to take a very serious look at its history and where we are today as it relates to mass incarceration. It is very problematic that this country incarcerates more people than any other place on the planet. It is also problematic that this country spends near $80 billion a year to incarcerate human beings. And I think that it is beyond legitimate debate at this point that our criminal laws are embedded with racism. And because of this, we have to understand that whatever is impacting one of us in society as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. so eloquently says, is impacting all of us. And when we are working to reimagine systems in a way that uplifts everyone in particular communities of color, it is benefiting us all.
2: That's right. And so as we talk about lifting all of these communities, there are going to be a number of criminal justice reform organizations that are already in the fight, that are doing the good work that it takes to make this happen. Can you tell me about a couple of them?
3: Yes, I will start with the Buried Alive Project as one. So I co-founded the Buried Alive Project with... My client, Sharonda Jones and Corey Jacobs, who were both serving life without parole sentences for federal drug offenses, who both served decades in prison and who both received clemency from the gracious and generous mercy of President Barack Obama. And we linked arms and co-founded the Buried Alive Project together where we worked to provide legal representation pro bono for people set to die in prison for federal drug offenses. We've saved dozens of lives to date. You know, and that work for me is very important because it it is life-saving. People are set to die in prison. There's no parole in federal prison. And so the work that we do is very near and dear to my heart because of cases like Sharonda Jones. And we have to know that there are many more Sharonda Jones, many more people buried alive in these systems. I'm also a huge fan of Ryan Stevenson and his Equal Justice Initiative. Mm-hmm. I mean, that museum, both of the museums that he has there are just amazing, you know, and it's really a testament to, to his work as a human being. He is an unsung hero, in my opinion, and the work that he
0: does is legendary. He's incredible. Absolutely. You, you are also incredible. You've done so many things. So let's talk about another, another campaign that you were spearheading, which is the 90 days to freedom campaign. This gained a lot of attention because it led to freeing 17 inmates in 90 days. And I know Kim Kardashian was also helped bring a lot of awareness to the campaign. How did you do it?
3: Yeah. So the campaign was a couple of years ago in 2019. And I linked arms with my co-counsel, at the time, My Angel Cody, and, you know, we just didn't think about it. The campaign literally started with text messages from My Angel and I of saying, oh, well, the First Step Act passed, you know, let's see how many people we can get free in 90 days, and we did not stop to think about it. We hit the ground running, we litigated cases across the country, and it resulted in 17 men who were said to die in prison being released, and that that work was very, very uh, challenging, of course, because the government opposed us on every angle, but the reward comes from the freedom.
2: Absolutely. And you just mentioned something really important, the First Step Act. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So the First Step Act is a great piece of bipartisan legislation that was passed under the Trump administration, signed into law by Donald Trump, and it. Is a first step. It's a first step in making these crack cocaine, powder cocaine disparities retroactive. And it's helped free a lot of people, you know. It is a limited piece of legislation and lawyers have been able to come in, you know, and expand the bounds of it in a way, a creative way that has resulted in even more freedom. And so it's a great springboard, you know, for, for the second step and the third step and the fourth step that I hope is to come.
2: You just spoke about bipartisan legislation and I know you've worked with both Republicans and Democrats in getting some level of criminal justice reform done and you've had clients that were granted clemency by both President Obama and President Trump. Can you tell me a little bit about what's the difference in those processes? I see you smile. The
3: the processes were very different under the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Under the Obama administration things were a bit more streamlined. There was an actual clemency initiative where President Obama was prioritizing cases of people like Sharonda Jones who were serving decades in prison under these draconian federal drug laws. And so there was a monumental effort under the Obama administration to work to grant clemency to as many people as possible. There was a monumental effort of pro bono lawyers coming together to take on this work. And there were great results. President Obama granted clemency to more people than any other modern day president combined, you know, and there were great disappointments as well, because there were thousands of people who were not so lucky to receive clemency. Under the Trump administration, there wasn't really a streamlined, process, things were a lot different. There were much more direct advocacy to the White House, so bypassing the Department of Justice, things of that nature. And it resulted in freedom, you know, for many people as well. So it, it was definitely, you know, two different, very different processes mm-hmm. that were in place. And because I was able to work through both, you know i am have strong opinions about transformation as it relates to clemency and even though things should be much more formal if you will than
0: mm-hmm.
3: what we saw under the trump administration i think that what we saw under president obama's administration and the previous administrations before him are cause a lot of just red tape and sluggish bureaucratic inertia as things go through the Department of Justice. So there's a lot of transformation that needs to happen on the level, federal levels it relates to the clemency process for sure.
1: Certainly you know, I'm really torn on this issue of the wealthy and powerful getting involved in prison reform, because on one hand, I think it's really good that we get more people involved. But on the other hand, you know, wealthy people in this country get away with bloody murder, like literally. And I'm always wondering what the motivation is for the wealthy to get involved in prison reform. You've seen kind of up front, up close, the influence that people can bring. Do you know or Do you have any ideas
3: on what their motivation is? You know, I don't know exactly what their motivation is. I would speculate that it runs the spectrum, right? There are some who have ulterior motives as it relates to certain type of offenses. There are some that look at it from an economic perspective of a lot of my taxpayer dollars are going to lock people in human cages. And there are some, quite frankly, that have just had a change of heart and that have developed empathy to the situation and the plight of people who are just as impacted. You know, Working with people from across the aisle, I've definitely had my share of unlikely allies, if you will, on this issue. But I do feel at the heart of it all, we have to put people over politics, people over this power trip, and, and really work to, to push justice for all.
0: Well, speaking of working to push justice for all, we have a new administration, the Biden White House. What are you hoping to see around criminal justice reform from the Biden administration? And also, how can we help? In closing, really want to also, you know, give our listeners some action items, how we can get involved.
3: Yes, well, I am hopeful to see the Biden administration fully reinvigorate the clemency process, granting more clemencies on a much more regular basis and really touching a larger population of people. It would really set well, not just to do it at the federal level as a president, but it'll really set the tone for governors in the states. I am also hopeful to see the Biden administration come out to the forefront to aggressively pursue impactful change as it relates to the criminal legal system and starting by encouraging Congress to make The rest of the First Step Act retroactive. The First Step Act, as I mentioned, is a limited piece of legislation. There are four sentencing reform provisions, but only one provision is retroactive. So we have people serving life sentences today under yesterday's drug laws. So those would be the two most pertinent pressing things, in my opinion, that I would like to see the Biden administration push forth. Um, Also, as it relates to, to legalization of cannabis, and really just show, you know, through action that this administration is taking transformation seriously as it relates to the criminal legal system. Ways people can help, one is just recognizing that the people have the power and utilizing our our right to vote. And once we utilize that right to vote for people whose interests are in line with ours, that we are holding them accountable to ensure that promises are carried out in a meaningful way. Other ways to get involved, I always encourage people to remember we live in an information age and to educate yourself as to how this criminal legal system is impacting lives. Criminal justice reform is popular, it's a hot topic, but I'm really surprised still at how little people seem to actually know about how the system works. And so I encourage people to educate themselves about the system. Get involved with local grassroots organizations in their areas who are doing the work. As mentioned before, there are lots of great organizations doing this work and volunteers, help, resources are needed, desperately needed. And yeah, ensure that you're visiting a prison along the way because it is definitely a perspective shattering experience.
2: And Brittany, if people want to know more about Buried Alive, how can they find more information
3: they could visit our website to find out more information about the Buried Alive Project at buriedaliveproject.org. We are also on Instagram at buriedaliveproject and on Twitter at buriedaliveproj.
0: Awesome. Great. Well, also another way that you can hear more from Brittany is to pick up her book, which is A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice and Freedom. It's out now. So thank you for joining us, Brittany.
3: Thank you so much.
1: I loved Brittany Barnett's book, A Knock at Midnight. I highly suggest that people read it. I have to say, I'm so thrilled that we got to hear from her. And she is exactly the kind of woman's voice who I want to see elevated. Definitely. And as we get to our potus, another
2: woman's voice who was elevated over the past week was Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett of the U.S. Virgin Islands. She was one of the House impeachment managers and spoke so eloquently and laid out the facts as it related to the insurrection at the Capitol and really helped open the eyes of the American people to what happened and the dangers that all of those members of Congress faced that. Terrible day on January 6th. And I just think that she did it with so much grace and she looked incredible. I know that that doesn't matter, but she looked. But she did. She was stunning, <laughs> stunning in that blue cape dress and then that pink bow in her suit. So just thank you to her for leading
1: our country through that. And our shout out this week goes to Evan Rachel Wood, who bravely came out against the abuse she endured at the hands of Marilyn Manson. When she came out, many other women felt brave enough to come out. He has now been dropped by CAA, his record label, and she brought about change. I think this is the kind of thing that we see. We wanna have these voices elevated in the moment so that we can call out those who are acting in the most
0: heinous of ways. Absolutely. Evan's a great example about how one woman speaking her truth can really galvanize a lot of women to come forward and ignite a conversation that's very important. We want to continue having these conversations with all of you. And we have a great episode that we're working on for you for next week. So be sure to tune in next week. Have a good one.